Well, welcome tonight. Tonight at New Life Friday Night, we have a special treat. We have the Andrew Arndt here in the house to preach. Andrew and I go way, way back, and you know him, you love him. He's the pastor of New Life East. And so tonight in week three of our series going through the book of Galatians, I want you to join me in welcoming the Pastor Andrew Arndt. Give it up. Oh, Friday night. Hello, can you hear me? Friday night, it is good to see you. I uh, had a long and busy week this week and uh, was feeling a little low on energy. And then I walk into Friday night and I see all of the friendly faces in the house. I see my friends Don and Ruth Pape walking up and I got my old friend Jared Mackey from Denver, a pastor in the Denver area is here tonight. And I'm seeing Elaine Cordo back here and all of the faces. So I'm so happy to be here tonight. If you have Bibles, it will be in the book of Galatians, uh, chapter 2. The Revolutionary Gospel is the series that we're in tonight. And uh, we have seen in the first couple chapters of Galatians a little bit of what Paul is trying to do. Although there's like this lurking issue kind of in the background of Galatians that we haven't yet started to wrap our minds around yet because Paul hasn't really put it out on the table, but you've seen him in the first few verses of Galatians chapter one, talk about his passion for the gospel. Then as he starts kind of rounding the corner to the end of chapter one, you see his astonishment that uh, the Galatians are turning away from the gospel that they've been given. And then as he starts kind of making his way towards that final stretch of chapter one, uh, Paul sort of sets up his own credentials as one who is a bearer of the gospel of Christ. And so Jesus revealed his word, his will, his ways to Paul. And Paul now is sort of recounting his missionary uh, journeys. And now as we come to chapter two, we're gonna start to see a little bit more clearly what the issue was that was driving the book of Galatians along, as you know, just by way of background. Uh, Galatians is one of the earliest epistles in the New Testament, which means that when we're looking at Galatians, we're really getting a glimpse of what was going on, some of the tensions and struggles in the early church. And one of the big tensions and struggles in the early church was the struggle for unity. What does it look like as we grow and become more diverse? What does it look like to hang together as one unified people? And upon what basis do we do that? And so tonight, what I wanna do is just spend a few moments uh, looking at what's going on in Galatians chapter two and thinking about together now, how that plays into the conversation about unity, which as we know, is a crucial issue in the divided world that we live in today. What does it look like to be a people who don't let petty, silly things divide them? Like for instance, when we were praying just a little bit ago, there was a guy on the stage with the New England's Patriots jersey. <laughs> And like, so like, how is it that we're a family together? But by the grace of God, you know what I mean? So we're going to cover all those things tonight. <laughs> if you can't clown around a little bit in church, right? Where can you? So can we just become still before the Lord here? And now we thank you, God. We thank you. We thank you for your presence. We thank you that you... Um, You've made a home for us with you. Jesus, you said that everybody that the Father sends you would come to you. 
and whoever came to you, you would never drive away. There has not been a moment of our lives where you were giving us the stiff arm. You've never pushed us away. All you do is welcome us. All you do is welcome us. And as we come into your presence and as we yield to the welcome of God, what we find is that the hardness of our hearts starts to melt away. And we're just praying that that would happen tonight, that the warm light of your love, the heat of your love would burn away all the things in us that are hardened, would soften the things in us that are hardened. And we're praying that tonight you would have your way among your people. We thank you that the kingdom is yours and the power is yours and the glory is yours forever and ever. And so tonight we pray that we would lean into the kingdom, that we would lean into the power, that we would lean into the glory of God and that we would be different because we did that. Would you give us that tonight? I'm praying that the scriptures would be clear to us tonight. Jesus, uh, these will just be words on a page or words of a preacher unless you do something more with them. And so I'm asking that you would take the ancient words of the text and I'm asking that you would take the faltering words of the preacher tonight. I'm asking that you would lift them up in your hands, bless them. I'm asking that you would make them your voice to your people tonight. Grant that. We ask that there would be a softening of our spirits, an opening of our hearts, and a will in us to obey you, to follow you wherever you call us to go. Grant that, we are saying, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Galatians chapter two and verse one, Paul writes, then after 14 years, he's been recounting his missionary journeys up to this point. So Paul has this dramatic experience of Jesus. You've read about it in the book of Acts chapter nine. If you've read through Acts, he's thrown from his horse. Jesus says to him, "Uh, why do you persecute me? And And Paul eventually is converted to Jesus, and then he starts heading up into Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey, and he begins to preach the gospel. So in the most of the kind of the last third there of Galatians 1, he's been talking about that, and he's done really good missions work for a long time. And then this kind of controversy starts to emerge, which now we're putting our eyes on tonight. So after 14 years, he says, I went up again to Jerusalem, and this time with Barnabas, And I took Titus also, and I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. So remember, a lot of Paul's ministry happened among Gentile believers, those that didn't have a Jewish background. And so now he goes to Jerusalem, which is really the seat of Christianity, right? That's where Jesus did most of his ministry. He was crucified, died, raised to life again. Pentecost happens in Jerusalem. The church starts in Jerusalem. It's really... Uh, um, in so many ways, it's like the, it's the leading city of the early churches. And so they go to Jerusalem, and he's presenting to them the gospel he preaches among the Galatians. And I wanted to be sure, he says, that I wasn't running and had not been running my race in vain, and yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised. So now we're seeing the issue a little bit. Even though he was a Greek, and this matter arose because some false believers, everybody say false believers, had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ and to make us slaves. We didn't give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now, as for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were doesn't make any difference to me. God doesn't show favoritism. They had added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognize, everybody say recognize, 
they recognize that I have been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised. So that's the Gentiles. That's a way of talking about the Gentiles. Just as Peter had to the circumcised. That's a way of talking about the Jews. Okay. So for God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Everybody say the right hand of fellowship. So they're receiving these guys, okay? They gave us the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace. That, there's that word again, recognize. They recognized the grace that was given to me. And they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they go to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor the very thing that I had been eager to do all along. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. So here's the scenario that happens in the early church. Remember, this is very shortly after Jesus is raised from the dead, the spirit is poured out. As the gospel starts to make its way in among the Gentiles and they begin to follow Jesus, this question rises up. And I think it's a natural question that was bound to emerge in the early church. If the church grows up out of the root of Israel, okay, so if its background, if its core is Jewish, remember the early Christians, all of them are Jewish believers, okay, so if it grows up out of the root of Israel, and yet these Gentiles are coming in, how much do they need to become Jewish people in order to stay in the fold here? And this was a major controversial issue in the early church, and so what you have in the church's that Paul was pastoring up there in Galatia is you had this group of very influential believers who were saying, anybody that comes, yes, Jesus has been raised from the dead, the Spirit's been poured out, all of that is wonderful, but that doesn't mean that the law of Moses has been abolished. In fact, Jesus even said that it's been fulfilled, which means that not only do we not, not get circumcised or obey the Sabbath laws or all of the regulations, but we have to do it all the more. So when Gentiles come into the, into the church, we must force them to obey the law of Moses. And that's how we're going to preserve our unity. It was a huge point of dispute. And this moment here that Paul is talking about in Galatians chapter 2, where he brings his gospel, and that's not how Paul preached, but Paul brings his gospel to the Jerusalem believers to discuss this issue, okay? How much do Gentile believers need to become Jewish in order to be saved? And also, is God actually at work in my ministry and in your ministry? That's the issue on the, on the table here. And this moment that he's talking about in Galatians 2, I think, is his way of talking about the pivotal moment that takes place in the book of Acts, chapter 15. So I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to Acts, chapter 15. This is Luke's version of the story. If you don't have your Bibles, just listen up. Uh, Luke says that certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and they were teaching the believers that unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, not just you can't belong to the church, but you can't be saved at all. So yeah, you believe in Jesus, but you got to do this other stuff as well, right? Well, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. And so Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some of the other believers to go up to Jerusalem. This is what we're reading about in Galatians 2 to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted, and this news made all the believers very glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, just like we're reading about in Galatians 2. And the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they stood up 
Here's this point at issue, right? The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. And so the apostles and the elders met to consider the question. And after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them all. Brothers, he says, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them. Everybody say accepted them. God accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. And he didn't discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe that it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. And then James, who is the half-brother of Jesus and one of the great leaders of the early church, stood up and said this in verse 19, that it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, sexual immorality, meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses had been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. In other words, what are they saying to the Gentile believers? You don't have to become full-out cultural Jews in order to belong to this movement. But the Holy Spirit has filled you Jesus has saved you. God the Father has included you. There's no extra thing that you have to do. You belong in the fold. And so this letter then, they put together a letter that's gonna circulate all around the church. And the scripture says in verse 30 of Acts chapter 15 that the men were sent off and went down to Antioch when they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. And the people read it and they were, what does the text say? They're glad, why, what did it do? It encouraged them, you know? You belong to this thing. God isn't pushing you away and there's not an extra entrance requirement for you to be in the kingdom of God. And that, brothers and sisters, is precisely what is happening in Acts chapter two or Galatians chapter two, that two critical issues are being settled. Number one, the Gentiles, for all of their differences, and they were very different, they belonged in the community of faith. They'd been drawn into the orbit of the kingdom and nobody gets to hold the arm bar up to the Gentiles. They belong. And number two, Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, which looked very different than Peter's ministry to the Jews, was just as valid in the sight of God as Peter's ministry to the Jews. That decision gets made. And do you know what happens? We are here <laughs> 2,000 years later, this moment of clarity and insight that the church had about the gospel leads to the Gentile mission, and we are sitting in this room like the astronomical growth of Christianity down through the centuries is the result, listen to me, of this moment where the early church settled this theological issue and was able to recognize the grace of God operating in somebody or some group that was different than they were. We are the beneficiaries of that moment. Can I get an amen or 17 in the house tonight? So what I wanna say to you tonight, let's just put this on the table, is that the recognition of the grace of God in others leads to at least two things. Number one, 
It leads to the unity of the church. This moment in Galatians had the potential to blow the church into pieces, and it didn't because they recognized the grace of God in each other. So the recognition of the grace of God in others leads to, number one, the unity of the church, and number two, the increase of the gospel. God gains more territory on planet Earth when we recognize the grace of God in each other. Amen. But it ain't easy, is it? We got to allow the Holy Spirit to stretch us with this stuff, guys. Because it's romantic when you read about it here. And we're 2,000 years removed from the tension and the difficulty of that. But it certainly was tension. And it certainly was difficulty. And unless we're willing to enter into the tension and the difficulty of seeing the grace of God in others, I don't know that we're really ready to run with the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this in the few minutes that I've been speaking tonight, but I'm white. I know, some of you are like, what is he? He's white. He's white. That's incredible. Man, I wish they told me ahead of time, you know. I'm white. Always been white. Uh, grew up in a little town in central Wisconsin. And um, I knew probably, this is maybe generous, I'm thinking, but I knew maybe five black people when I was growing up. And uh, like you do, you know, when you're a kid, growing up anywhere on planet Earth, and it doesn't matter where you grow up, wherever you grow up, you just think that your way of thinking and your way of being and your way of doing stuff is just right. And it's right because in your mind, just because you like it and you're used to it, okay? And that's the way that I thought, okay? Andrew just thought that the way that we do things in central Wisconsin and the way that we do church and all of that, that's just right. And I didn't know that the word for that is ethnocentrism, but I know that now, but that's just the way that it was for me. <laughs> And by the, by the grace of God, the limitless kindness of God in my life, when I went off to college or Roberts University down in Tulsa, Oklahoma, yeah, baby. I got put on an all or traditionally all or mostly black floor, which was awesome, though I didn't realize it at the time. And I do remember that moment of like meeting all of my dorm mates, you know, for the first time and being like, this is okay. Like we've got, uh, there's like culture shock is about to happen for Andrew, you know? And so the adjustment period of trying to like figure out, and there really were, I think on my floor that year, there were like three other white guys. Uh, two of them were the grandsons of a famous televangelist and the other one was from Canada. So I really did feel extremely, extremely lonely. And I just remember, you know, I'd go up to my floor in the middle of the day or at night or whatever, and those guys were just pumping the gospel music like it was nobody's business. And God forgive me, at that time, I really just had no appreciation for gospel music. And I did think, and I'm just going to say this, and as I say this, I'm thinking of all of my African-American friends in the room who are looking at me, and I feel embarrassed to say this, but I did think that it was just a little bit boisterous, you know? which is a wildly hypocritical thing for a kid from a Pentecostal church to say that anybody's music. We running around with our Jewish ballads, you know, and storming the enemy camp and all of that stuff. And that's just my, all of that. I'm just got a bad attitude about it, you know. And I remember like, where's Don Moen and Kent Henry when you need him? You know, I'm really dating myself here, but. <laughs> I do remember one day I came into 
you know, finished up class or whatever and got up to my floor, walking back to my dorm room. And I did hear some music that afternoon that was very familiar to me. Somebody had an acoustic guitar and they were playing, now I'm really dating myself with this, but uh, they were playing Daryl Evans. And at the time, Daryl Evans in like my white little world like was all the rage. And so I'm hearing Daryl Evans like coming from one of these dorm rooms and I'm thinking like, the, what the, somebody is playing the music of heaven here. It's amazing. This is beautiful. And so I start walking down the hall following the music. And as I got closer and closer to the room that it was coming from, I realized that this music was not actually being played with very much sincerity. <laughs> a couple of the guys on the floor got their hands on an acoustic guitar and they were like, they were making fun of Daryl Evans. It's like I remember like looking in the room and watching this happen. They're, make, they're making fun of Daryl. How can they make, and I remember just thinking, like, don't you understand? Jesus sings Daryl Evans' songs. <laughs> he does. Before the throne of God. He's just up there and he's trading his sorrows. No, that doesn't make any sense. But you know, like Jesus is singing Daryl Evans' tunes and the culture shock of that and entering into all of that. And, but you know what happened as the year wore on is that we became brothers friends. We loved each other. And a group of men that I would have never expected to find home with, 850 miles away from Marshfield, Wisconsin, I found home. They took me in, brought me in. They took care of me in ways that I like desperately needed to be taken care of, even though I didn't realize it. I remember coming out of my dorm room one day, just looking all however Andrew looks, which is like semi to you know, pretty slovenly most of the time. And I'm walking out of my room one day and my next door neighbor, Brandon McGriff, Brandon looks at me and he goes, he just like scans me up and down, you know? And he says to me, <laughs> he goes, do white mothers not love their kids? <laughs> so I go, well, it's, um, it's difficult for me to speak for all white mothers. And when you put it like that, I just don't really know <laughs> how to answer the question. You know, he goes, get on in here. I go, I'm going to be late for class. He goes, get in here right now. He goes, give me that shirt. So we went into his room and he pulled out the ironing board, you know, <laughs> give me that shirt. I take my shirt off and give it to him. Press that thing looking so nice. So nice. Just really sharp. Then he goes, give me your pants. At that point, I was in too deep. I was pot committed, you know. <laughs> so I'm standing there in my boxer shorts next to Brandon, and he's pressing my pants, making me look. That's the, that's the church, though, I think, you know. You know, the, just the vulnerability of that. And, like, I would have never picked you, but God gave you to me, and now I'm responsible for you because we rise and we fall together. There's a thousand issues that we've got to allow the spirit to stretch us in, guys. But when we do, beautiful things start happening. You know the words of the psalmist, Psalm 133. Oh, how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity, the psalmist says, 
It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Where does God bestow his blessing? In the place of unity. When we recognize the grace of God in each other, when we look at one another, not as aliens and strangers, but as brothers and sisters and friends, as fellow members of the body of Christ, the psalmist says that when that moment happens, when we're dwelling together in unity, when we're ironing each other's pants and appreciating each other's music, when there's not discord and division between us, the psalmist says, there, in that place, the Lord commands his blessing. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says that blessing is God's power for life, which is why the psalmist finishes as he does. There, the Lord commands his blessing, even life forevermore. The life of God that conquers sin and death. And there's one life of God. He doesn't give lesser forms of life, but he gives one life of God, that eternal life that was with the Father and has appeared to us. That life right there, it floods all things and makes all things new. Where and how? Unity. The church comes together. Think about what Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, one of the last things that he prayed before he went to the cross, John chapter 17. The scripture says, my prayer is, is not for them alone. He's talking about the 12 that are around him that night. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Who's he referring to now? Us, that all of them may be one father. Now track with the language here. Just as, what? You are in me and I am. Think about what Jesus is saying about his desire for unity in the church. That it's not just that they all kind of like, I don't know, we tolerate each other. That's the world's version of it, right? But in the church, the unity is so deep that it actually mirrors the infinite life of the Godhead. May they be one just as you are in me and I am in you. And then watch this. May they also beware in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. Next slide. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them just like you have loved me. The whole infinite, undivided, perfectly harmonious life of the Godhead according to Jesus is to take root among the fellowship of the faithful so that their life becomes the clearest window into what God is like. I wanna say it to you like this tonight, that our unity is the most powerful witness to the world of the saving love of the triune God. It's not our fancy worship services and it's not our evangelistic strategies. It's not our apologetics. 
It's not our cool new media thing that we're putting out there. It's not our social media strategies. It's not, it's not any of that stuff. According to the Lord's own word, Jesus' own words, the most powerful witness to the world of the saving love of the triune God is what? Our unity. And if that's true, then the contrast is also true, isn't it? That our sins against unity are the most powerful anti-witness to the world of that love. And we just better let that sink into our spirits. That our said there is nothing, to say it another way, there is nothing that is more damaging to the cause of Christ in the world than our sins against the unity of the church. We've got work to, to do on this, people. Sins high and sins low, but the sins are everywhere. And the enemy knows this also, which is why he's always trying to pervert and scramble our relationships with one another, planting suspicions in our minds and fears in our minds about each other's motives and all of that. I remember being in seminary. Um, Mandy and I attended one of the largest churches in the area, 15,000 or so people, and we loved that church, man, amazing church. Great preaching, great worship, community was so great, and not too far away from that church, maybe 30 minutes away, was another church, 15, 20,000 people. Both of those churches in different ways were two of the most influential churches in the United States. And they had different philosophies of ministry and there were some different theological positions that they held and things that were distinctive about them. But I remember just as a man, maybe this was just youthful idealism, but as a 22-year-old, 23-year-old, 24-year-old, I remember thinking to myself, Surely two churches that are this big and committed to Jesus in the same area, caring for the same people, these churches are going to be, find a way to be together somehow, right? The pastors surely are friends with one another and talking with one another and praying with one another. And as time wore on, we were there for a couple years, as time wore on, I began to realize as I asked, started to ask around that those two pastors of those two huge influential churches that both of them loved Jesus and were committed to the cause of Christ that those guys never got together, not ever. There was bad blood between them and differences between them that they couldn't resolve. And I remember just thinking to myself, like I was so scandalized by that. How is that possible? How is that possible? And do you know what it was? That they had slightly, slightly different takes on discipleship and evangelism. And apparently, that was big enough in both of their minds not to be together and to let the power of the life of God, as the psalmist describes it, spill out into the greater metro area of that city. We're so scandalized by that. And we do that all of the time in the church. Part of the reason that we do that in the church is that we don't, we've lost the ability to distinguish between primary matters of faith, I think, and secondary matters of faith, okay? We've lost that ability Primary matters of faith. One God in three persons, right? Primary matters of faith. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The incarnation, right? Primary matters of faith. He was crucified, died, buried. On the third day, he rose again. Primary matters of faith. The giving of the Holy Spirit for the empowerment of the church. Primary matters of faith. Beyond all of that, 
There's secondary matters of faith. Exactly how we understand the triune life to work. Exactly how we understand what was happening in the incarnation. Exactly how we understand what was going on in the atonement or how the spirit works or all manner of things like that. But what we do in the church so often is we take those secondary things and we elevate them because we happen to feel really passionate about those things. We elevate them to a primary status. And when we do that, we bring injury to the body of Christ. And we scramble the very life of God in the church. I remember around the same time being in seminary. And we, uh, this was at a time when the conversation around the respective roles of men and women in the church, what's the role of the husband, what's the role of the wife, and also women in ministry. Should women be pastors and all of that? A hot button issue at that time. And our seminary, there were lots of different people, lots of different perspectives represented at that place. And I remember having a guy come and he led a chapel service. And this was a guy who was devoted, devoted, very devoted. In fact, he had built a lot of his ministry around what theologians would call a complementarian view of the home and also of women in ministry. And that is that the man is the head of the household. Everybody submits to the man. And there's no preaching, teaching, or authoritative leadership by women in the church. That was his position. You can hold that position. It doesn't put you outside the bounds of orthodoxy, though I don't prefer it. Okay? But that's a fair position to hold. But I remember him getting up in a chapel service and saying, making his case for his thing, and then saying, if the scripture teaches these things, and I think that it does, if you don't line up with that, then you're in direct disobedience to the word of God. Okay, so wait a minute. So what you're going to do is you're going to take this secondary matter or this minority viewpoint in the church and you're going to make it a point of trying to excommunicate other people in the church over it? Who do you think you are? Some kind of evangelical pope or something? (laughs) It ain't in your job description, man. But I remember in that moment as he was saying that, and here's the thing, okay, and all of us need to deal with this. In that moment as I'm watching him doing that, do you know what I'm feeling rising up in my own heart? I want to excommunicate that son of a gun. <laughs> right? I don't hold that position. And maybe I can respect people that hold that position, but you don't get to be mean. And if you're going to be mean about it, you're going to be nasty about it, then I'm booting you out of the church, right? Because I don't like mean and nasty people in the church is like my thing. (laughs) Here's what I want to say to you tonight. You can put the next slide up on the screen. The moment that we make our pet issue, whatever it is, the mark of salvation and or a source of division That's when you leave the fold. That's when you leave the fold. I want you, if you have your Bibles, to look back down at Galatians chapter 2 and verse 4. Paul is talking about these influencers who had come into the church. And watch what he does here. He says, this matter arose because some, what does the text say? False believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. Now here's the fascinating thing. He calls them false believers. 
Why does he call them false believers? Is it because they happen to practice circumcision? No. Is it because they happen to practice the Sabbath laws? No. Is it because they follow the cycle of the festivals in the Jewish calendar? No. Is it because they abide by certain dietary regulations and restrictions and all of that? Is that why? Why does he call them false believers? Because they insist that everybody else has to. They insist that everybody else has to. And that unless everybody else does the faith, just like they do the faith, then those other people are outside of the fold. And you know what Paul says? The moment that you do that, you're the one that's out of the fold. You've become false and destructive to the body of Christ at just that point. And brothers and sisters, I'm telling you tonight, that's a word for our time because we do that now. Did you survey the landscape of the body of Christ and people are doing this everywhere in the church right now, right? They got their pet theological position. I'll give you three things that we do in the church uh, that we do this over. We've got our theology, right? We've got our thing that we happen to feel really passionate about. So we elevate that secondary matter to a primary matter and we divide the church over it. Some of it is women in ministry stuff, how you're supposed to set up the household, the charismatic issue, your particular view of the sacraments, all of those things, right? The moment that you take that thing and you insist that everybody else has to believe it just like you believe it, it might be a thing, predestination and free will. I don't know what your thing is. But the moment you elevate that to a primary thing, you're the one actually that has imperiled your own standing in the body of Christ. We do it over our theology. I think that we also do it over our ethics, don't we? Right? What's permissible for a Christian? What's not permissible for a Christian? There are certain things that are outlined, very clear in the New Testament, and there are other things that are less than clear. Maybe you happen to be a Christian and you believe that Christians just, alcohol, no, don't do it. But the moment you start insisting that everybody else has to abstain from that thing, you bring division and disunity to the body of Christ. In the past year, as this global pandemic is raging around the world, right? Christians got very passionate about the right kinds of ethical positions to take. Pro-mask, anti-mask, pro-vax, anti-vax. And I watch the church tear itself to pieces over this issue that is at least a debatable issue. Are we in agreement on this? Are we good with that? Okay. Our ethics, our politics, politics. We get so consumed with our idea of what is right and best for this country. And we make enemies where enemies don't exist, guys. And I want to say to you tonight that wherever and whenever you do those things, I think that what you're doing is you're taking a good thing. And I want to just be clear that it's a good thing. Okay, your theology, I know, however you, however you believe, you didn't do that haphazardly. You thought about it and you worked to get to that position and you have something that you see of God that nobody else sees of God. You have, you have, a, you have 
something to communicate to the body of Christ, that the body of Christ needs to hear your theology, how you see things, that's valuable. Your ethical position, what you're trying to advocate for, that's a witness to the body of Christ. It's something that we need to hear and we need to see. And even your politics, you got something that you're arguing for that you should passionately argue for and it's a good thing. But the moment you take those good things and you make them ultimate things that start dividing up the body of Christ, you know what I think you do? I think we're taking spears and I think that we're shoving them again into the side of Christ. We're bringing injury to the body of Christ. Paul says that the church went forward because those believers at Jerusalem, they recognized the grace of God that was on his life. Can we rise up and start recognizing the grace of God in each other? If we can't, then the world is lost, guys. The game is over. If unity doesn't happen here, where is it gonna happen? Gonna happen in Washington? <laughs> you know? Gonna happen with some other religious group? Is it gonna happen? Where is it if it doesn't happen in this room? If it doesn't happen among us, if it doesn't happen among God's people, if it doesn't happen among those who believe that in Christ Jesus, the wall separating Jew and Gentile has been fully and finally torn down. Where is it gonna happen? It ain't gonna happen anywhere. So you know what our call is? It's to repent, to throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus, to recognize that we have been responsible for this, that we also have shoved spears in the side of Christ, that we also have pierced his hands and his feet, that we also have sundered the body and so we're coming to him tonight and we're saying, would you forgive us knowing that he will? Would you stand tonight? And if you got him, you take your communion elements in your hand and if not, the servers or the ushers are coming down in just a second here and they'll be passing them out. But can we just begin to quiet our hearts tonight? And I want you, I know that a message like this can be large and abstract and all of that, but, but if it's not concrete, if it's not about us, then it's not really about anything at all. And I want you just to think now, I want you to think about maybe those people or that person in the church that is the hardest for you to love, the hardest for you to recognize the grace of God in. And I want you just to begin to let the Lord tenderize you, draw you out. I want you to search your heart uh, for pride, for pride. We're living in a world right now that's being wrecked by tribalism. And you know what tribalism is? It's the idea that I'm right and my group is right and everybody else is wrong and unsafe and the world would be better if they weren't here. If that's in you, if that's in you, that needs to go, Okay. That's an unclean thing. Like if you're sitting here tonight and you're like, you know, the world would be better if there weren't Democrats in it. Hi, you gotta repent, okay? Or vice versa. The world would be better if there weren't Republicans in it. The world would be better if this person wasn't there or these people weren't doing things the way that, stop, stop, stop. And so we bring ourselves before you, Lord Jesus, and we're not gonna hide. We're not gonna hide. We wanna have open hearts before you. We are saying with the psalmist tonight, create in us a clean heart, oh God. Renew a steadfast spirit in us. 
Restore to us the joy of your salvation. And that's the thing that we're missing out on is the joy of recognizing how you're saving us all together. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and grant us a willing spirit. Come and soften us, tenderize us, help us tonight. I want you to pray this prayer with me tonight as we prepare ourselves to come to the table. Paul says that when we take the body and the blood of Christ, we ought to do it knowingly, examined. And so let's pray this prayer tonight. And this is a way of examining our own hearts, calling on God for mercy and grace. We say, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Now here's the good news, brothers and sisters. Those folks that pierced his hands, those folks that shoved the spear in his side, those that were responsible for getting Jesus crucified, those that were responsible for dismembering Christ, Do you know what he says from the cross? Father, forgive them. They didn't know what they were doing. Tonight I say over you that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, if you can receive that, would you give God praise tonight? Just lift up thanksgiving in your hearts to the Lord. Oh, we need you, Jesus. And we remember that on the night that you were betrayed, after you had given thanks, you took the bread and you broke it. Can you break the bread tonight, friends? And you gave it to your disciples and you said, take this and eat all of you. This is my body. It is broken for you. (laughs) We broke you, but it turned out that you were broken for us. This is my body. It's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you take the body of Christ tonight? Oh, we're grateful. We are grateful. And we remember that on the night that you were betrayed after the supper, you took the cup and you said, take from this all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's poured out for many for the remission of sins and not just the remission, not just the taking away of guilt, but the giving of a new heart, okay? Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me, brothers and sisters, the cup of salvation as you take it to your lips tonight. I want you to see the Lord giving you a new heart, working a new spirit in you. Can we take the cup together? Amen and amen. Let's respond in worship tonight. Body bound 
can you, we didn't have this plan at the beginning of the night, but thinking about this text, Camilla leads worship down at Nueva Vida, our Spanish speaking congregation. And she is an absolute woman of God. Her parents are the pastors, incredible family. And I thought we need to sing a song in a different language. Just like level the playing field and just say, this is the God of every tribe, tongue, and nation, and people group. He's not the God of English, (laughs) okay? He's English too. So would you sing what a beautiful name it is? Start us off in Spanish, and then you can take us to English. So lead us, Camilla. Amen. What a beautiful name. Cuán hermoso su nombre es. is how you say it in Spanish. So let's sing together. I believe in you guys tonight. Let's sing, Cuán hermoso su nombre es. Thank you, Lord. Cuán hermoso su nombre es. Cuán hermoso su nombre es. su nombre es nada es igual a él cuán hermoso su nombre es no hay otro nombre sing now one more time cuán hermoso so good so good cuán hermoso señor cuán hermoso su nombre es cuán hermoso su nombre es Beautiful name, and what a beautiful name. Sing it tonight. What a beautiful name it is. The 
Alex, come here tonight. I'm calling audibles left and right. Alex Thomas. Alex Thomas is a, a pastor up in Denver. He's going to Denver Seminary. He grew up around this church and in this church. He's a man of God, stud athlete in college, a sprinter, and a bright mind that's going to serve the church of Jesus for the next many decades. And so would you pray us out here at the benediction? Send us out with blessings. Speak whatever blessing you want over this congregation. Would you open your hands, church? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this, this congregation here. New Life Friday night, Colorado Springs. Jesus, I thank you for this city. I thank you so much for the revival that has been taking place, God. I thank you that we can be a people that see disunity in our world, but we choose to live differently than yes. that. So, Jesus, I thank you for this family of believers in this room. And, God, I pray peace over them. I pray grace as we see the brokenness in our world, Lord Jesus, as our hearts burn for that. Jesus, I pray peace over those that are struggling. God, I thank you that we can be a family that can support each other and lift each other up, God, that we have not been forsaken by you, and therefore, God, we can extend that to each other, God. So, Lord, I thank you for every person in here. I pray safety over them as I leave, and you would continue to bless them and make your face shine upon them, Lord Jesus. It's in your mighty, mighty name, Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Give it up for Alex. Give it up for Camilla leading us tonight. Let's say thanks to Andrew Arndt for preaching. Seth, Abby, team, all of you, bless you. All right. I want to invite our prayer team to come down. For those of you who need prayer, we are here, and we would love to pray over you. And remember... Pray over Anthony as he goes in 30 days. Anthony, we send you out in God's blessing, God's peace, much love. And now tonight is the final summer night's party after Friday night. So go get the cupcakes, go get whatever we have. We got all kinds of stuff out there. Let's stay and let's hang out. Let's talk and enjoy. Go from here in God's grace and peace. Much love.